0: Thank you so much for joining me for episode nine of the Shorter Speaks with podcast. I hope everyone is well. And this week I spoke with uh, author Lee Jackson. And he's the author of the Reluctant Assassin series and the After Dunkirk series. And he spoke about those books. He also has some really interesting anecdotes about, um, well, about the Cuban Missile Crisis and about... Um, how the main character was based on his father-in-law and had some really interesting stories about that. And he also spoke about um, some very interesting stories about World War Two and about Bletchley Park and uh, how spies operated uh, in World War Two and how that comes into his books as well. So um, uh, with that, please enjoy. This week, I am delighted to be joined by author Lee Jackson. So hello, Lee, how are you doing? Very good, Georgia. How are you? I'm doing very well. You got the name exactly right. (laughs) That's (laughs) very impressive. (laughs) Well, I practiced it. (laughs) No, because it's uh, it's, it's very impressive because a lot of people don't know how, how to say the name. It's very difficult Complicated Irish names. So well, I'm going to use it sometime in the future. I'm sure of that. <laughs> well, so you can feel free to use it in one of your future books if you wish. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you're uh, you're an author of uh, historical thrillers. So you've written books that during the Cold War. And you're now writing books set during World War II, and you're a military veteran as well. So I'm looking forward to speaking with you. I'm sure you have some very interesting stories to tell us <laughs> that I'm looking forward to hearing. Um, but f- first of all, then, because you've written, as I mentioned, a book in, uh, set during the Cold War, uh right. spy thriller series, and the main character, as we we're discussing, his name is Acho. Uh, mm-hmm. He's the main character, so uh, the first book I believe in the series is called "Curse the Moon," if I remember correctly. So, right. okay, okay. So I was wondering if you could uh, give the brief synopsis first of all of this a book and let listeners know what to expect if they read that book.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, let me tell you first of all that uh, one of the things that's happened in the last uh, well a little bit over a year ago is that all of my books were picked up by another publisher and republished. Oh, very good. Congratulations. Well, thank you very much. And also then it included a contract for for the future books. But after, you know, I finished that uh, series, which is to be the advent of the World War II books. And the reason why I bring that up is that uh, they changed the title for Curse the Moon. So now it's called (laughs) The Reluctant Assassin. Oh, okay. (laughs) So... So, I think if, they, if there are still some um, so, some uh, uh, paperback copies of Curse of the Moon, it might still have that title, you know, on some of the places. But otherwise, if they look for it, they probably wouldn't find it. They would find it under the reluctant Assassin.
0: Right, yes. I have it on my um, Goodreads want to read, because I thought it was a different yeah. book.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's fine. And uh, I think all that's the only one where they changed the title. They did change the uh, the covers as well on um, the, that one, The Reluctant Assassin, as well as on uh, Vortex Berlin, as well as on um, uh, Fahrenheit, Kuwait. And then uh, they published um, uh, Target New York. So there was okay. no change. So there's a, is there five books in this series? Yes, five then, books in yeah. uh And the new series is a World War II series, as you mentioned. And um, uh, the first one is um, uh, After Dunkirk, and the name of the series is the After Dunkirk series. Okay. okay. So, so the first book in the series is After Dunkirk, and the second one will be coming out. Now, if you look at Amazon, it says uh, September. Um, the plan is actually to do it around March time frame. So okay. Which, Shortly after uh, January, you know, the, the second book. And, and, and it's amazing to me, but the pre-sales for that book are, are doing very very well. Oh, very happy to hear. I, have to, well, I have
0: to read the first one because I read the synopsis and I thought, oh, this sounds like something I'd be very interested in.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I've, that one's done very well, too. They, they all have, actually. Oh, well, I'm very happy
0: to hear. It's uh, well, well-deserved. I said, uh, I've read uh, your, some of your previous books with the Acho series. And uh, so, you've, you know, I love your writing style and the way you, you write the books and the characters as well, which, um, you know, which, you know, I was really you know, turning the page or reading really on Kindle, kept, kept tapping <laughs> to find out what would, ha- what would happen next. Um, so, so then, OK, so The Reluctant Assassin is your first mm-hmm. is the first book now in the Atcho series. Right. Um, so what, what, what is this, this about then? Because I remember th- the first scene in that book really grabbed me. Uh, in, in mm. Cuba with, with Acho. Um, so, now, I'm scared of giving spoilers, so I can let you give a brief synopsis.
1: <laughs> okay, that's fine, and, and I'll try to avoid spoilers. Sometimes you, you, you wander in, you realize you're already, you're already doing it, and so you kind of try to back out of it. without. Being <laughs> it. But, uh, no, it's set in Cuba, and uh, just uh, shortly before the Bay of Pigs uh, battle. And, uh, and, and most of the story, most of the detail of there is absolutely true. You know, um, I, I mentioned in the earlier part when we were just, and me talking, that um, one of the criticisms that people make sometimes is that my, the detail seems too fantastical. And, and the <laughs> sad part of it is that, it, that it's not. And the reason why I say the sad part, there's one chapter in there where Acho, the main character, is uh, tortured unbelievably. And uh that's what people say it's unbelievable, but unfortunately it, it it happened that way and uh so uh I wrote it as a um a fiction as opposed to a nonfiction The main character is a composite character Acho is it's based on my uh my uh, father in-law who was a leader in the uh the revolution the counterrevolution against Castro, so he was there when Castro came in and, and promised the world he was this and then turned out to be that. Mm-hmm. And uh, a whole lot of the population objected to it. And uh, he was a tyrant. He came through and he, he captured people and he tortured people and he oppressed the people. And, and uh, Acho and his cohorts and my wife, she came out when uh, she was 11 years old from Castro's regime. And you know they, they lived it. And so what I learned about Cubans in writing that book was that uh, they, they sometimes get frustrated because it's a little tiny island. And although people like you know, Cuban cigars and cuba libre and those kinds of things, they really don't know what took place down there. And among the books that have been written about it, they don't have wide readership. So what I decided to do is, okay, I'm gonna write this book about my father-in-law, but I'm gonna do it in such a way to broaden the audience so I'm going to do it, you know, as a, as a thriller. And, um, you know, I, I read a book many, many years ago by Alistair MacLean called Siege of the Villa Lip*. And one of the things that uh, caught me as I read that book was I couldn't tell if it was real or if it was fiction. And that kind of informed the way that I wanted to write. You know, the biggest compliment that can be paid to me is when I got to the end, I, I couldn't tell if it's, that really happened or did he make that up. You know, and so the way to do it is to intertwine, you know, real historical events that people go on on Google or some other you know browser and and search on and find out. Wow, that really happened, or you can kind of know that uh, some of the characters are fictitious. And I say that, you know, I always put that in a disclaimer. But uh, so in in with with that first book, uh, the the reluctant assassin. Again, it's it's a composite character. You know, he gets captured at one point. That scene that you talked about at the very beginning of the book. You know, he inter he interacted with the um, uh, milicianos, the the Cuban G2 or intelligence people, and uh, that what what was described there. Somebody said, "Oh, that's such a bloody way of, of opening a book." Yeah, but unfortunately, that's what really took place. You know, in in so many instances. And, uh, when, and when you describe, when I described the the things that took place inside the prison, there was this one place where the prisoners, you know, confronted the prison officials. Now these aren't your, these are not uh, people that are in there because they're uh, you know robbers or murderers or thieves or burglars or you know raping women or anything. These are the intelligentsia of the country. They're in there. These are doctors and lawyers and very well educated people who've done nothing other than disagree with the government and, you know, in a a public way. And so they're in there and they're treated horribly, except that uh, the, the, the um, Cuban officials understand that these prisoners in there are pretty good at, uh, at administering themselves. So they essentially let them do that, except that they were overseen by people who were murderers and thieves and thugs and so on. And so they rebelled, and, uh, you know, and, and they just refused to do anything until uh, the the, the, administ- the Cuban administrators, the, the head, not the prisoners, but the head honchos said, okay, we'll take them out of there. You know, you can administer yourselves without oversight from these other prisoners. Um, and, and, that, and that took place. I mean, that actually took place, and, and it, you know, the, the hero, Acho, goes through all that. When he's, in, when he's thrown in prison. and then later on he comes out, you know when I first was researching the book and uh, you know, he comes out and becomes a, uh, uh, a sleeper agent for the Russians, for the uh, Soviets. And, uh, and when I first that idea for doing it that way first came to me, I'm thinking, well, that sounds a little bit far out there. And then as the years have gone by and I've done greater and greater research on it, first of all, I found out, no, it's not that far out. But, <laughs> uh, you, you know, then you find out it really happened. There were people like that here in the United States. And as a matter of fact, there was a, a whole TV series called, I think, The Americans with, mm. a, the, was with a K that was based on just exactly that, you know, on that concept of having people that were just here in the United States. They've been taught how to speak and act and so on. And so uh, he he became one of those, but he resisted it, mm. you know, for love of country, love of his daughter, and and uh, so on. So I don't I don't want to give too much away there. But, uh, oh, I think I think that that's that's perfect there,
0: <laughs> that, uh, from, because it's been a few years since I read it, but it has stood, you know, in my mind, you know, com- you know, out of all the books that I've read as well since then. Um, because of of these scenes and this character who uh, Acho as well I found him such a fascinating kind of complex characters as as well as you mentioned for his love of country as well that he he doesn't really want to go that he's put in this horrible situation as well Um, and you mentioned that uh, Acho is a composite of um, different characters including your father-in-law did your father-in-law go through any of these things that the character Acho goes through or is or is that perfect fictitious oh, oh absolutely
1: when when the prison scenes in particularly that the main prison scene which is uh, uh it's, you know it's in those days called isla de piña or isle of pines which has since turned into the isle of youth you know because the, the prison there was at the time he was there was known as the worst in the whole world and mm. uh, wow uh, yeah and uh they they finally had to you know, destroy it and, and turn it into a camp for youth because the uh, the young people, because the, the reputation was so horrendous. And um, it was built on a uh, that on a uh, plan for a, a prison up in Ohio, if I recall correct. I want to say an Akron, but don't quote me on it, because I'm not sure that's, that's uh, been a few years since I researched it. And so I don't recall specifically right now if that was it. But um, it, was basically, it was big towers, I mean, humongous towers, you know, from, uh, with diameters of maybe, you know, 100 meters, um, you know, and several of them. And when they were inside there, they were essentially loose, you know, to wander around. And, and they had levels, so, you know, floor, stories, floors, you know, that they could go around and into. But in, in the very middle of the tower was another tower, a smaller one. And mounted at the top of that was a was a gun sight i mean you know a cubic cupola with uh, armed soldiers in it you know so uh, they the soldiers were safe from the prisoners, but if the prisoners tried to act up, bam, they were you know right on top of them machine guns anywhere in the in the uh in the prison. One of the most interesting things to me i I first decided I want to go and research that because I learned that one of the things that the prisoners did was they they snuck in through families and so family members and so on. They snuck in components of radio. They actually built a radio while they were in prison uh, uh, from component parts that people put you know got into them during visiting hours, and uh, and they would get together and assemble the radio every day, and each per each one that was in this group that did that would disassemble the radio when they were finished listening to uh, voice of America or Miami news where whatever. And each, so each one of them had a place to go and hide their component in case their rooms got tossed. So my, my father-in-law, that was his real nickname. It was not his code name, (laughs) (laughs) but uh, you know, I thought it sounded so neat. I used it, but his uh, thing that he kept was a transistor. And so he, he had this, he would tie it by a string that was, you know, hair's width and drop it into a little hole. And he had a little stick that would make it so it wouldn't go all the way down further. And so every day he'd pull that out, take the transistor with him, put it together with the other guys, listen to the radio, and then come back and, at the end and, and put it back in there. It that's was just genius, it was, inventive.
0: That's really, that's genius, actually.
1: <laughs> uh, you know, the, the, one of the most, uh diabolical and yet from you know looking hmm. at from there what they did was uh all of a sudden they had the they they were all told they had to stay in their rooms for and this is going on several days and they brought in a crew you know they assembled a crew of prisoners and had them digging this uh, place inside the uh you know, you know on the floor of, of the prison inside one of the towers what they figured out was that uh they were, they were putting in uh, explosives. Castor was worried about when the invasion came that maybe they would come and release all the prisoners. So he was setting up to blow them up, right? What the prisoners did was in, under the, 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 the eyes of the guard, they managed to dig another hole in another part of the prison and dig a tunnel to the place where the explosives were placed and disarm them, you know, and oh. back <laughs> without the guard ever knowing it. Now, then they say, but the ba- the sad part of the bad part of that is that, you know, they were going to, all they had to do was line up cannons and shoot at them anyway, you know. So yeah. But they, they did things like that. And it's, he was part of it, yeah.
0: Well, no, because as, as you mentioned as well, if you put that in a, in a book, people would say, oh, this is crazy this this could never happen but then it did happen (laughs)
1: yeah was there
0: was there any research that you did anything that you did for any of your books that you thought was too crazy too (laughs) too out there too over the top that actually did happen in reality that you thought i can't possibly put this in one of my books nobody would ever believe it
1: yeah, probably <laughs> the one that I really thought about was, uh, I called it, the, you know, the, the box. And when you read the book, you probably, you know, La Caja. I think know? I remember, yes. I think vaguely, yeah. yes. Yeah. I think and you I- just, you know, you think, you know, can what what kind of a mind can think up doing something like that, yeah. you know? And, and then you find out, well, it was really done. And, and if you do more research, you find out it's not really that uh, novel of a torture method it 's used in, you know, been used in other places, but essentially, essentially is is putting a person in a box so small and yet so big that they couldn 't stand up they couldn 't lay down they couldn 't uh, sit straight and and leave them there literally for months okay? i 'm not talking about uh, you know for a few hours until things got, joints got stiff i 'm talking about months. And if you think about the body functions that take place while you're in there, and how do you get fed, and what position you get in, and what the the you know the, the bones you know they, they get stiff, and the muscles get stiff, and uh, and then uh, they finally pull you out, and obviously you're going to have sores, mm. and they spray you down to clean you off, you know, whenever they feel like it, and put you back in, uh, and you got about two seconds to figure out what's the most comfortable position that I can get in in there. And they feed you through a little, and they, and they can either leave the light on in the room or off in the room. And it doesn't really matter to you because you're in this little box with just a slit, you know, for putting food through. And um, that was one, you know, when I was thinking about it, uh, was, you know, people aren't going to believe this. But it
0: Unfortunately, it did happen.
1: Yeah, I haven't run into anything. You know, in my second book, Rasputin's Legacy, there's a fight scene inside of a big aircraft you know and that was where some people referred to that specifically and said that could never happen that way well you know i've been around the world too much (laughs) (laughs) exactly that kind of stuff goes on you know and if if uh that one's kind of mild in in fact compared to some of the things that that uh, have been done by operators out in the field and uh so to answer your question about is there anything that i i don't think i have (laughs) have I've thought about not putting stuff in but I don't think there's anything that I have not put in because I thought it would be too outlandish (laughs) it's kind of like people want to believe it or not believe it that's their choice they can they can do some research and find out you know how real it is or isn't if they want to
0: (laughs) right no but from you know from speaking to you then you know these historical things most of them actually happened it's not not your imagination <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> now now i string things together you know right. that particular story surrounds you know the uh the um, attempted coup in uh the soviet union you know with mikhail gorbachev mm. well in the setting of the book i actually do it a year before it took place you know so it and there was a reason for that. If I recall correctly, it was because uh, there was a meeting in New York City of, of Reagan, Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev, as Reagan was leaving, you know, the presidency. Okay, and so it was kind of their farewell meeting with each other. And I wanted that to tie into the, the plot, which was the attempted overthrow of, of uh, Mikhail Gorbachev. And that's why I moved it for the, the that whole scenario over a year. And I even explained that in an in author's note at the end of the book. But, uh, you know, I, I used to work with NASA and um, uh, they, brought in, in a, they brought in this uh, photographer, this NASA photographer who came and spoke with us at a uh, conference. She had been the photographer for the NASA group that traveled to the Soviet Union one week before that attempted uh, coup against Gorbachev. And as a matter of fact, um, they were on stage at the end of their uh, trip talking to the, uh, the Soviet uh, uh, astronauts and engineers and, you know, uh, not- not- notable people from that. They were talking from that stage. Where exactly one week later was where the leaders of the coup attempt made their <laughs> announcement <Wow. laughs> over the government. You know, right? it was somebody you know that was available to me that I could talk to and and uh, you know learn about you know what 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 went on back in those days. And so did, did everything play out? But you know there are some very definite um, historical events that I, I, I talk about in there. Um, You know, Rasputin, for instance, and that's, uh, you know, that's my takeoff point, is uh, the the monk in Rasputin who had such a hold over the imperial family back just before the advent of the Soviet, uh, the the communist takeover in in Russia. And um, that guy exercised an incredible amount of influence. And what the, the story plays with is, are we now today suffering from what he did back then? You know, and uh, you can read the book and come to your own conclusions. An awful lot of, of what's in there are, are things that resulted from his being a part of, of Russian history, you know. So, the, you know, it, it plays all the way out into, you know, what's happening today that's resulting from what happened, what, what he did back then. No, yeah, so maybe he has influence
0: not just over the, um, the the royal family, but over all of us now. <laughs>
1: exactly. Yeah. That's what I call Rasputin's legacy. They did try to change that title to um, "A Spy in Moscow," as I recall, and I don't recall there was some kind of technical uh, issue why they it, it didn't stick. Um, but, and what the publishers fear was that as you know the Rasputin's legacy, it sounds like a history book history text mm. <laughs> you know when it's not it's another thriller um but uh the but what i'm really talking about there is what was his legacy to us to the world you know uh, because of some of the things that he pulled off back then interesting so maybe he was a magician then he could uh,
0: influence yeah. the future With <laughs> um, a lot of the- myths about him uh, that I, that you, I read.
1: <laughs> one of the things that I, I've learned in, in researching all these stories is the, you know, you say, as you say or said earlier, truth is stranger than fiction. And nobody likes to go reading, a lot of people, most people don't like to go read a text. They do like learning about history if they can, you know, learn about it in an entertaining way. And so that's what I you know, primarily mm-hmm. attempt to do is entertain. But I, the stories always intertwine with real historical, actual events that took place. And so the you know the the, the if I if I'm going to write um, nonfiction, then I need to write nonfiction and describe it that way. If I'm going to write fiction, let's not pretend it's uh, you know I'm telling a story, but I'm trying to uh, uh, you know educate the world. Um, mm. I know when I was writing that book, um, one of my beta readers uh, a guy who would read the book and let me know you know this is good that's bad whatever which is different than an editor very very good guy and he wrote back and he said lee from it's a great story but uh the reader should never hear you you know if Mm. uh if if they're hearing you then you're 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 trying to teach them something and they're likely not if they don't agree with you then they're not going to like it you know so pull whatever message you have out of there you know, and just uh, let them make their own decisions about you can draw their own conclusions about things, you know, at the end of the story by the the, the nature of the story itself. That was probably one of the biggest pieces of good advice I ever had. And by the way, my mentor on that, he's not the one that gave me this advice but if you ever uh, watched the Die Hard series of movies, Mm -hmm. uh, Carmine Zazora was one of the producers and he was the prime uh, producer on Die Hard with a Vengeance. And at any rate, he was my mentor on writing Rasputin's Legacy. And uh, so, you know, I asked him, would you read this? And he said, sure. And then, you know, four weeks went by and heard from him. and then he, after some, several more weeks went by, then he called me and he said, Lee, this is a great book. And then I could hear the but. <laughs> There's a butt coming. <laughs> I heard it in his voice, you know. And he said, but, he said, you're killing me with his description. You got to oh. pull that stuff out of there, you know. Why do I care if the waiter put the plate down on the left or the right? Or, you know, if it was, a, you know, porcelain or china or, you know. Uh, <laughs> you know, there are flowers on the sofa or not, you know, if you can put the description in the action, that's good. Mm. But if you're going to concentrate on describing something to me that I don't care about, you're killing me with the description. So that was another great lesson learned, you know, and and I did. I I think in Raskin's Legacy, when in the first book, The uh, Reluctant Assassin, I went back and re-edited after going through his mill <laughs> and I think I, I took out like something like 30% of the book, you know, wow. and, uh, and, and with Raskin's legacy, an awful lot, of, it was painful to do that, but uh, you know, uh, I took it out of there and made sure if I'm putting it in there, you know, it's got to reveal the, the main character. It's got to reveal something about a primary character or it's got to advance the story. And if it doesn't do any of those things, then it, it doesn't belong in there. And uh, that was a, a tremendous piece of, um, of advice from him as well. Okay, I have to, I have to say, k- kill your darlings, <laughs> I've heard. Yeah. And, and by the way, he then turned me over to a guy by the name of Bill Thompson. Bill Thompson, he, you might not know who he is specifically, but uh, he was Stephen King's editor. He, wow. he, he also <laughs> discovered John Grisham, and, uh, and, and was his, his editor. So when the guy called me, or actually Carmine called me and said, Hey, Lee, uh, would you like to have Bill Thompson? He told me who he was. I said, Yeah. (laughs) And so I I called Bill and before I could even say hello, he said, Lee, you got it. You know, and I said, wow. Okay, the heavens opened and like me for a, a that's minute. A,
0: that's <laughs> a great compliment. Stephen King's uh, editor to say that you got it, you know, to give you, yeah. you know, a compliment. It's not, it's not just anybody give you a compliment. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. So uh, then uh, I got to Vortex Berlin and you know, in the pre interview when you and I were just talking, you know, you're you're curious about the age progression of the character. Yeah. And uh, what I was I was uh, attempting to do is move him forward in time to get it closer and closer to the present and what was going on today. And uh, so, you know, I was actually in Ver- Berlin before uh, the Berlin Wall came down. I was in East Berlin before wow. Berlin. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I saw what conditions were like on that side of the wall and what things were like. And you could see the, the disparity between the two uh, societies. And uh, so... Uh you know, I, my son, when I first told him what I was writing about, he says, How are you gonna put hacho in Berlin? I said, read the book. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but uh there it was uh it, it was it was it actually became a much more natural progression than when I when I first you know came up with the idea. And uh it had to do with uh, you know, his his love interest in the book is uh Sophia Stahl. And, um, uh, again, not to give too much away, but, you know, she had had diplomatic, uh, doings in, uh, in Berlin and that set the stage. And, uh, so, uh, what I, I, again, this, this one beta reader, you know, when I, after I wrote the first draft and sent it off to him, he says, I'll tell you something, Lee. Um, it's a great story, you know, but I never feel like the, um, the characters are in real danger. He said, I know what the end is. The Berlin Wall comes down. And but in the progress, in the pro and and, and the readers readers know that, you know. So what makes this book interesting? And he said, I, I never I, I don't see that the uh, characters are, are ever in real danger of losing their lives or, you know, being imprisoned or whatever. Yeah, you know, I thought about that. I said, you know, he's absolutely right. And uh, you know, it became another Thing in my head mm. to make sure that when I'm writing future books, I, so I went back in and changed some things up to make sure that uh, these, uh, these uh, writers or, or excuse me, these the characters, characters yeah. uh, were really making decisions and, and doing things that would put them in, uh, in harm's way and, and, and actually harm came to, to greet them at the door. You know, <laughs> and, um, <clears throat> Now I will tell you, there's a guy in that, in that book by the name of Joe Horton. And uh I worked with a master sergeant in Germany that I just love this guy. I never realized until, until I started reading this book how much of an influence he had on me. Because if you know Joe Horton, the real one, and you know this Joe Horton character, you can see that uh, the, the the fictional one matches up pretty pretty good <laughs> with you know, the real one. And uh he became the most uh loved character, I think, of, of all my characters, maybe Oh really? The yeah. And uh, you know, he's kind of a he, he's kind of a, you know if he's talking with superiors you know he'll kind of look at the ceiling and bounce his head around like this and oh well I gotta listen to this shit you know <laughs> and but he, he's the guy that he but when 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 the when the going gets rough he's the guy that knows exactly what to do <laughs> you know he's, he's he's BS all the time. But when it's time, when the, when the ashen comes, bam, he's right on the spot. So, not only have I carried him through the rest of the books, you know, uh, in that series, but when I was uh, getting ready, to, when I was doing um, uh, after Dunkirk, there is a character in the name in there by the name of uh, uh, another Horton, right? Well. By the time I get to the end of the series, people are going to know. I, this one fan I wrote in said, what are you planning on doing with Horton? I said, well, <laughs> you know, he said, is, that, is he related to, to, to one in, in your first series of books? I said, well, as a matter of fact, it's going to end up being his father. <laughs> 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 you know, they're going to have very similar personality. personalities. That's where <laughs> that from. So, uh, <clears throat> Derek Horton, that's the that's the the one in the uh, and Acho, By the way, his father will also appear in the, the World War II series.
0: Uh, oh wow! So
1: this is how they relate related. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, interesting. Well, the uh, it's not so much that I'm linking the stories as <sighs> much as I'm linking the characters.
0: Right. Yeah. So no, I actually I
1: actually love when
0: authors do that. If you you know read different series, that even though they're completely different, they're different time periods, different settings, that there's yeah. some link with the characters as well. It's like oh, I know this is this character related to that character. So yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm looking forward and, to reading uh, it
1: now. It's <laughs> yeah. So when I went from um, Vortex Berlin then to uh, Fahrenheit Kuwait. You know, during the the war, there's so much. You know, people they know the these events on the grand scale, but there's so much of the little detail mm. that makes the story so interesting. You know, um, in uh, when when Fahrenheit when when the uh, they started burning the oil fields in Kuwait, back when Saddam Hussein uh, uh, invaded there, they um, the the calamity was that. The, the, those oil fires were were literally expected to burn over a decade. You know, we put wow. them out in three months. Uh, but originally, they were. You know, uh, the guy that that scientist? Uh, I can't. You know, he was he was famous for saying billions and billions. Uh, Carl uh, Sagan. Carl mm, Sagan. Yes, yes. A very very famous, noted uh, scientist. He's not with us any longer. But uh, yeah, he was on. He was quoted, and I quote him in the book you know, is saying this is going to take 10 years to put out. Well, you, you know, then, you, then the other thing that happens is what if somebody's got a nuclear device to, to pop in the middle of that thing? Now, interestingly, because of the way the winds blow around the world, you know, the last place to have been affected by it would have been Saudi Arabia. <laughs> because, <of> the, <laughs> the, you know, the fallout would have gone all the way around the world and come back uh, Saudi Arabia. <laughs> yeah so um you know what happens if you've got a terrorist who who gets a hold of a of a nuclear weapon and drops it in the middle of that you know so uh that's uh that's where that came from obviously it turned into a, it it was a uh a horrific environmental disaster, but it was one that could have been much more horrible by by many many degrees you know uh so then on to the, the final one was uh, in that series is um, Target, New York. And again, these are the same characters that go all the way through, the, and like I've mentioned. And they uh, Progress, yes. Uh, Joe Horton, you know, goes on through there. And, um, but uh, in Target, New York, um, everybody knows about 9-11. What they don't know very much about is the uh, attack on the World Trade Center that took place in 1993. You know mm. what that Eight, eight years earlier where they planted bombs in the, uh, in the, uh, the, the, the garage, the, the basement garage of one of the uh, towers. And the idea was they were gonna explode that and then that would weaken these, the, um, the, the uh, foundation such that the tower would, lean, would fall into the other tower. They'd take them both out at the same time. And uh, interestingly, we had an awful lot of intelligence about what was gonna take place and we didn't act on it and you know big questions you know why didn't we you know exactly <laughs> <laughs> and um they they had a guy in in prison well uh, there was a, a traffic accident one of the drivers for the terrorists was a, a nut case you know he was really not very smart very enthusiastic but you know one of these guys that's going to create accidents when there are none right <laughs> and uh so he has he's in, runs a, light, a stoplight, crashes into somebody else. The main bomb maker was put in the hospital. Okay. <laughs> the uh, so uh, they take the car and they impound it. The police do—they would anyway. Anybody's car, you know—they they impound it until you know you come get it and take it to get fixed and so on. <clears throat> so the the prime um, bomb maker is laying in the hospital bed. And he's making his orders for the materials that he needed from the hospital bed in New York City. <laughs> Meanwhile, he has, he has his guys go and take the the, mater- the things that were in his tr- in the trunk of his car out. And you know, at the impound lot, they went to the impound lot and, and said, "Hey, we need to get the stuff out of that car." So they they let him in to do that. That was all the materials that he had to make the bombs. <laughs> and they let him just take it. <laughs> I mean, it, was just, uh, it was just totally amazing the things that I uncovered uh, in doing all this research. And it, this is a matter of public record. It's not me making it up. <laughs> you know, people go check the details and you find, oh, my God, that, that really happened that way. Yeah. yeah. And um, Again, <laughs> it's I so,
0: straighter than fiction.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, then a, a little over a year ago, um, I'd say probably in the July time frame, I'd make it a year and a half, I guess, almost. Um, I got approached by publishers, Severn River Publishers, and uh, said, we looked at all your books. We really like them. We want to republish them and and give you a contract to do more books. And uh, we suggest, and it was just a suggestion, you don't have to do it, but you do World War II books. And I said, you know, I love World War II books. The only reason why I haven't done them is because, you know, it seems like the market's saturated. Mm. And they said, well, believe us, it's not. You know, really? as a matter of fact, now it's it's coming into primacy. So you know, did you ever read or are you familiar with um, uh, Pillars of the Earth? Yes. By Ken yeah. Yes,
0: yes. I've, I've read one, one of my favorite books, actually, Pillars of the uh, Earth. And he, yeah, he I also, know that's the book is around you. All these people come out of the woodwork and say, hey, you're
1: reading that book or you've read that book? I love it." Yes. book
0: and he wrote the uh, fall of giants the series as well which is start second world war and then cold war i haven't read the third one yet but yeah yes, no. absolutely
1: and then you've got uh uh leo his, his the author's name is escaping me for the moment the guy that did uh, winds of war um and uh so Basically, it's it's kind of the same thing. Now you're getting a little bit more complicated uh, plot structures because you've got lots of running parts. Um, when I was researching to do the first um, uh, book, I agreed to do that, and you know, to do World War II books, and so I'm looking around for a story that I can write and. And uh, I'm thinking, okay, you know, I, I do have to have an American and an American audience, but the war, Americans didn't get involved in the war until 1942 and off the Brits had already been fighting for what, three years or four years by that time. So if I'm going to be true to history, I need to start it back then. So I'm looking around to say, was there any American involved anywhere in the war, you know, <laughs> prior to 1940, you know, uh, uh, December 1941, I guess it was, excuse me. And um I found a very interesting uh, situation where you've got this little island, you know, Sark Sark Island off the coast of France, along with Jersey and Guernsey, and they belong, you know, they're British islands, they belong to the Brits. And uh, Sark Island is an island that since Middle Ages has been ruled under the feudal system and was until just very recently. And uh I almost wish it w- it still was, but I must say recently, I'm talking about in the last couple of years. And so when I kept reading on this, uh what what I the way I found it was again trying to find an American, this family that was the um the ruling family there under the feudal system, had a son that was killed during the uh the Blitz in uh I think he was in Liverpool. So it's okay, there's my American, except I haven't used it in the story, right? But um, at any rate, he. Um, <clears throat> when I kept reading on, what I found out was that the, the father, the, the, the husband in that story is in, an American. That was by, by right of wife in the feudal system, he was the senior co-ruler along with the Dame of Sark, right? And that island was occupied by the Germans. So you have this strange situation where you know it's a british isle occupied by the germans where the senior co-ruler is an american right and uh and they did have a large family and they were so I, I didn't use their names i did uh you know use you know the the circumstances around that out of it i built a, a family that had uh you know uh, two sons uh, up at dunkirk when that was going on Uh, daughter, you know, doing stuff. I don't know if you're familiar with Bletchley Park and the intelligence. uh, Yes,
0: no, I know know a little bit. I'm not an expert by any means, but yeah.
1: (laughs) So she's in there. And then, you know, when I got on into the second book Eagles over Britain, what I learned was the first uh, American casualty in the war was a guy by the name of Jimmy Davies. Uh, I think he was a flight lieutenant with the RAF. He was killed over France. So, you, you know, You get people who say, who is the first American casualty? You know, was it him or was it uh, a guy by the name of Fisk um, down in in the, uh, uh, actually in the Battle of Britain? And uh, they called him Billy Fisk. Well, Jimmy Davies wasn't in the Battle of Britain, but he was killed before the Battle of Britain when they were fighting over France, okay? So that happened before the Battle of Britain, you know, occurred. But then you have this guy, Billy Fisk, and I have him interacting with uh, one of the sons out of the, the family, you know, from the Stark Island and who's now over in Britain and is fighting in the, uh, in the battle of Britain. And, um, in, in this guy, Billy Sark, he was an American, but he was like one or two generations, uh, separated from the aristocracy in great Britain. And, um, he, um, he was a two-time olympic uh, uh, bobsled gold medalist champion he was extremely famous all around the world had millions of fans who dearly loved him he was uh, a guy that was was very wealthy and uh you know and, and good looking and uh you know but he, he none of that went to his head he was a, you know he was a, a down-to-the-earth guy that uh cared about his fellow pilots and and uh, he was uh, he was killed there in in the war. That's a fact. And so, but he, you know, I have him interacting with the, uh, the the family from Sark, you know, through there, and and then go into the details of what took place in Britain. Well, one of the things was that the um, the Americans were dubbed Eagles by the Brits themselves because that's our national bird, right? Right. And so the, you have the Eagles over Britain, but. In the in the whole scheme of things, when you got when you talk about the few, the few that flew in the Battle of Britain, you know from Churchill's speech, you know uh, about uh, you know owing so much to the few. Uh, there were about there's roughly 500 pilots, you know. So you had Czechs and you had Poles and you had uh, 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 even one Israeli there, uh, and but from various uh, New Zealand and so on. So out of all those total, there were uh, about eight Americans. So if you're going to write a book called Eagles Over Britain, you know, you don't want to insult the Brits by making them, by implying the message that uh, the Americans won the war for them, because that is hardly, that isn't at all what happened. You know, Brits were you know, uh, I, I was raised among Brits. I love the Brits. I would never in, insult Britain <laughs> But, uh, but then you had these, um, these American pilots over there and uh, what were their? you know, they had to to buck the FBI because it was illegal for them to go and fight in Britain's war and they could lose their citizenship and, and uh, so on like that. But they did get over here. They did fly. They did uh, participate in, in the war, you know, in the battle. And, but uh, the battle was run, was won by the Brits By the people on the ground, by the people in the uh, in the defense, um, uh, you know, the uh, air defense uh, setup. I mean, a whole bunch. It's this is a war story. It's a spy story. It's a technology story. It's a love story. All in one. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, much along the line of Winds of War, or uh, you know, uh, the uh, Ken Follett book Pillars of, of the Earth yeah no i mean i I, lo-
0: I love these historical books you know myself. I love historical fiction. I think you mentioned as well that people when they like history probably won 't read texts, but they will read fiction
1: <laughs> with,
0: yeah. uh, with, yeah. and i 'm probably the same that I would you know if there 's a big book that 's all you know fact to text, I might be like oh it 's going to be taking a long time for me to read. but if I read a fiction book with fictitious characters but in real events. Then I, I might learn more as well and might stick in my, my head more. So
1: well, one little teaser I'll give you that just this blew my mind when I it's it's what I'm getting ready to tell you is absolutely factual. Okay, okay. I'm ready. And that is that <laughs> British intelligence was run from an office in downtown Manhattan in the Rockefeller Center for the really? for the duration of the war you know and uh, w- how did that come about well, yeah. i was you know and uh so you know that uh, that plays into there you oh know. very interesting yeah
0: i i really you know looking forward to reading this now it's <laughs> but i love you know these books i love the ken follett uh, books um you know his pillars of the earth series and his uh the fall of giants series as well so something like this as well that you can really sink your teeth into with these different characters, and um, even compared to uh, you know fantasy books, which I know are different, but like the Song of Fire and Ice, you know, by George Orwell Martin, that you really sink uh, your teeth into and just get involved in these characters in this world as well. But th- this, you know, sounds like something you know, similar that there's a lot of you know, fact in it that you put into to fiction, um, which you
1: mentioned as well. When I started with After Dunkirk. You know, I, I, of course, the movie was out not that long yeah, ago. Yeah, I have going to mention that as well by Christopher Nolan, yes. Yeah, and uh, I, I, I don't recall exactly how I stumbled over the story, but uh, in, in researching what came later, what I found was that there was a whole bunch of, of soldiers left on the beach in Dunkirk. You know, and, and I say, and, and I'm not just not, and, and I'm not talking about just a few, I'm talking like, you know, over 200,000. So okay. they were left after the rescue. Oh, yeah. right? oh well, what? you often think about it, what what Churchill was trying to do was get his fighting army back to Britain to defend Britain. Otherwise, it was lost. You know, mm. and uh, so the rear guard was was uh, l- largely made up not always not all the way across the board, certainly, but an awful lot of of poorly trained troops or people who weren't troops at all. You know, like engineers who were over there, they were royal. Army uh, sol- soldiers, but they were engineers. They were over there building roads and airfields and so on. Suddenly, they, be- with virtually no training, they became you know the rear guard to protect against the uh, the the evacuation. And like I said, there was over two hundred thousand, and there it was it wasn't just Brits; it was also French people and some Poles. Well, what happened to them? Yeah, Is <laughs> <Does, does> that <laughs> really play in the book? Yeah. Okay, and, uh, so. I mean, in all honesty, the Britain's greatest maritime uh, sinking of a ship took place in in that action to try to rescue the uh, the armies. You never hardly hear about it, but yeah, if you look at the cover of the book and you see a ship sinking there, you know that that's that ship. And I, and I won't say any more than that right now.
0: No, 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 yeah, because I'm I'm very intrigued now to know what what happened to them, to them, because we yeah. do know about uh the people that were rescued. You know, the soldiers and. Uh, well, boys, mainly a lot of them that were rescued yeah. back to Britain. But we don't know what happened to, they didn't say, you know, Churchill didn't say exactly what happened to, to the people who were left behind.
1: <laughs> well, and, and another, you know, piece of, uh, of the puzzle is um, all the, you know, a lot of these guys, they literally trekked all the way across France mm. into Spain, got down to, uh, or, uh, down to uh, Gibraltar and came across through the ocean. They Wait a minute, during a war where Germany's already overrun, they came all the way across France, how'd they do that? Yeah, (laughs) That kind of of intimates they had to have had help. Hmm. There you you come in with the French resistance. And uh, so you have the formation of the French resistance. And some people were smart enough to figure out before the war even started that this is likely to take place and already had networks in place. You even had uh, a a, a, um, MI9 set up under British intelligence, that whose purpose it was to assist soldiers, aiding, uh, assist soldiers who were uh, escaping and evading from the Germans, okay, to the extent, just to give you an idea, they had, they entered into a contract with, with Monopoly, the people that make Monopoly boards, right, <laughs> so that when... You know, when as late as the war went on and they had more and more prisoners in Germany and they were allowing the Red Cross packages and packages from home to be delivered, you know, and Monopoly was a, a good game, they, the Brits got the Monopoly makers to allow them to insert maps inside the board that when they got inside the prison, they could slit that board open and pull out a silk map that uh, could then help get home. I mean, wow, it, <laughs> <laughs> this is blowing my mind. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's it, it blown my mind. You know, I, I, mean, I really appreciate the publisher putting, sending me in this direction because, you know, I think I, if I lived another hundred years, I, I'd still only scratch the surface of the stories that took place.
0: Yeah. Wow. I mean, next time I play Monopoly, that's going to be on my mind now. <laughs> 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 now, I don't want to keep you too long because I kept you here a long time mm-hmm. as well. But do okay. you know how many, how many books uh, you plan on having in this uh, Arthur
1: Dunkirk series? Or? I don't, you know, and, and it's, uh, uh, y- there are two ways of writing books. One is by um, uh, outlining another and and another is by uh the other is by r- letting the characters tell you the story and i'm I'm of a second persuasion that's the way that I do it mm. um, and uh, I'm glad I do. They take me in all kinds of, of loops but <laughs> but um th- what i what i've what I've discovered already is that there are so many little nuances um that uh I could literally write. From now till doomsday, and and never cover the the, the waterfront. You know, there, there there's always another story to tell that I'm going to learn by, you know, dig, getting in and, and and doing the research and digging it all out. Right. So, nice. um, you know, uh, this this latest book um, that the one that uh, is coming out in January, or excuse me, in, in the spring and March probably. Um, that one. Um, you know, ends about the same time that the Battle of uh, Britain ends. Okay, and uh, then you have uh, the Blitz that uh, took place after that. Well, how many times can I describe people going through you know a bombed-out night without boring the reader? You know, say, okay, Lee, we get it. You know, so but there was an awful lot that took place during that time during that time frame. That was the time that uh, you know uh, Churchill started talking about getting into the belly of the crocodile. What? What do you mean getting into the belly of the crocodile? You know, well, that's the Africa campaigns. You know, if you if you if you think the head of the crocodile being up by Great Britain and the tail of the crocodile being over in uh, you know north Af- in uh, uh, by the Suez Canal, that part of the country, then the belly of the crocodile is that north part of Africa, and uh, and uh, which you know that's where they uh, fought an awful lot during the time that they were rebuilding. Britain was rebuilding the ability to fight you know and, and again it wasn't until uh 41 the u.s got in involved and then they uh, uh started fighting first in africa but an awful lot had already taken place in africa so again you know if, if uh you know i have the quandary of okay my primary audience is, is american and i need to keep that in mind but if i'm true to history you know the brits and their allies did an, uh, an incredible amount of, of uh fighting down in, the, um, uh, in that part of the world. By the way, I, I don't know if you know this or not. You know, I looked this up.
0: Uh, I probably I don't.
1: <laughs> I, I ran across this just before you and I uh, started communicating. Um, the, the youngest and, and one of the most successful wing commanders in the RAF during the Battle of Britain and beyond was, uh, was Irish. Really, I did not know that. Yes, his name was Brendan, and I I don't want to mess up his name now. <laughs> oh, don't worry. But Brendan Finucan, uh, Brendan Finucan. Okay, yeah. And at 21 years old, he was a wing commander. Wow. <laughs> yeah, and, and he was he was an absolute hero among the Brits during that time frame. Yeah. Wow! I, again, I did not know that. I mean,
0: I thought I knew something, you know, not a lot, but something about World War Two, but it's. It's clear that you always learn something new about it. <laughs> yeah,
1: I haven't yet figured out how to fit him into the story, but I'm looking for it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I look forward to uh, to seeing how he fits in, or to see what you do next. And uh, you know, there's a, there's a lot there, and. Um, I, I suppose that the final question that, that I have for you then before letting you mm. go is, I, I asked you this before uh, recording, because as I mentioned, you're a military veteran, you served in, I believe, in Iraq and Afghanistan, and we could, I'm sure, spend a whole other podcast talking about that, but um, mm. I don't want to keep you for another five hours. <laughs> but um, wh- when you're know, writing these books you know the Atcho books and the as you mentioned the after dunkirk books and you clearly know a lot yourself about well the world war ii and about um, you know the history but th- did your own experience as a military veteran does that come into play when you're writing these books so do you know you know i mean i know it's this is historical and i'm sure things have changed over the years but does your own experience as a veteran does that come into play when you're writing these books
1: yeah absolutely i mean the, the when I was uh you know riding vortex Berlin for instance, you know I could reflect back on you know what what did Berlin look like to me when I was there and you know what was it like going through uh um, the the checkpoints uh, I remember coming up through um the corridor on a train in the middle of the night and I woke up uh it was dead of winter and I woke up at one place that we stopped and I don't know why we stopped but uh, you know I, I look out the, the window and you know Here's, here's the, you know, I'm sitting next to the, the window and just the, tra- the, the train, the train, the, the walkway is right outside the window, maybe a foot away from me. And on there is, uh, is a Soviet soldier, East uh, German soldier. No, I think the Soviets were guarding it if I recall correctly. And he's not more than a foot away from me, you know, physically. Of course, there's a the train wall and then the, you know, the uh, railhead head and he's standing on top of walking in the snow. But he's just kind of walking back and forth with his rifle slung over his, sh- his shoulder, just kind of pointing our direction and smoking a cigarette, you know. And I'm looking at him thinking, he's just like us. <laughs> That's just another GI out there, you know, pulling guard, which he really doesn't want to do, you know. And then uh, we, we rolled on into um, Berlin. We got there sometime after dawn, so it was, it was uh, you know, light coming through. The train is coming through at a snail's pace moving into, you know, into Berlin. We had to go through part of the uh, East German sector to get there. And they had these pillboxes. And now you've got the, uh, you know, the soldiers are in their pillboxes. And you can see them. And they're pointing their, their machine guns at you, you know, and, and they're ready. And uh, you know, it's a little bit, of, it was a little bit of a sobering um, uh, event. And uh, if, if you read Vortex Berlin, I I, I go into some detail again keeping in mind you know keep the description within the action but uh taking somebody through you know what it what it took to get through the east german and into west berlin from uh you know say france or west west germany uh it was it was pretty uh sobering but back to Mm. that goes to your question about does my military experience come to bear And certainly, you know, in Afghanistan and Iraq, I was out patrolling with uh, among the population just almost daily sometimes. And and all of the, uh, you know, security um, considerations for, you know, how you get, how you do things. How do you pass information? When does it become secret? When is it, uh, you know, know, open information for anybody to know? Those Mm -hmm. types of things, which... You know people in uh, operators they have to worry about those things
0: no, mm. oh, well, very, very interesting i mean my one of my cousins in Ireland he's part of the Irish Army, mm-hmm. and he think he's going to go to Le- lebanon soon um, mm. somewhere so and he was just telling me about his experience. And immediately I knew that I would not last five seconds <laughs> <laughs> I knew this you is, not for yourself. me <laughs> maybe but i I was thinking no i mean i I really you know admire him for being able to you know to be there and he, he loved it he loves it, but i was i was like no i i don 't think i would be able for it 's just you know you know not not even being sent abroad but uh, <laughs> so um so well that's that 's great so that 's uh uh, your, your books and a reluctant assassin and um, the after Dunkirk series, and your new book, Eagles Over Britain, will be released probably maybe sometime in spring. Uh, maybe you yeah. are saying, uh, Is there do you have a website or anywhere or anything where people can find out? Yeah, about you uh, your it's, books? It's,
1: it's pretty easy. It's uh, uh, Lee Jackson at authorleejackson.com.
0: Okay, so authorleejackson.com yeah I'll, I'll put it in the show notes anyway and do you have a you have a
1: mailing list as well? Do you still do that so you send to people i do and if, uh, uh actually on if you go to that page right at the very at the bottom of that of that landing page is the where you would enter you know the information to get onto the mailing list
0: cool so if people wanted to know more information yeah. about your books and uh that would yeah, and uh, as matter, well, my
1: email address is the one we've been using. You mm. know, Lee Jackson. Oh, I, yeah, but, wait, I just gave you my email address, and I said, uh yeah, authorleejackson.com <laughs> is the. Oh website. yes,
0: okay. Yeah. yeah, and your email address. uh Well, thank you very much, Lee. That's all the question. Oh, I mean, thank I've you. I've learned a lot uh this <laughs> evening. <laughs> I'm sure people listening will as well, and uh, and I look forward to to reading. Uh, well, to, to finishing reading the Atlas series and reading your Eagles Over Britain and After Dunkirk books as well, and uh, whatever
1: else you write then. And, um, and yeah. Good. Now, don't hold me to this. The name, the title, the working title of the next book is uh, Turn the Storm. Turn the Storm. Uh, Interesting. Yeah, so we'll see how that goes. Oh, interesting. <laughs> so thank you. I really have enjoyed it. Really yeah, me
0: too. It. Thank you so much. Uh, you were one of the first people, one of the first thoughters I wanted to have you know, to speak to. And so thank you for agreeing to to speak to me.
1: <laughs> and uh, we'll keep in touch then. All right, sure. Thank you so much. So Take thank care. you.
0: So that was my conversation with Lee Jackson. I hope you enjoyed it. And a huge thank you to Lee for joining me. It was a pleasure to speak to him. And um, so that is it for this week. As always, you can subscribe to this podcast if you want to get all the episodes automatically. You can also help this podcast if you so wish by rating and reviewing this podcast on Apple Podcasts. You can also go to ratethispodcast.com forward slash Shorter Speaks with and you can uh, you can rate and review there in the links as well. And if you want to become a guest on this podcast, you can uh, do so by going to shorterspeakswith.com forward slash uh, be my guest. And the links will be in the show notes. And so that's it for this week. Uh, thanks to all for joining me. And next week will be the final episode in season one, where myself and my co-host from the Adventure Games podcast, Thomas, speak with the former CEO of Sierra Online, Ken Williams. So please join us then and take care, everyone. Goodbye.